I invite you to turn with me to our reading for this morning, which comes to us from the book of Genesis, chapter 21. Genesis, chapter 21. I'm going to read the verses 1 through 12. Genesis 21, the verses 1 through 12. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abram made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So far, we now turn to Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapter 4. Galatians, chapter 4. If you're visiting today, uh, we've been uh, doing a series on Galatians on and off since June of last year, working our way through this magnificent epistle of Paul. And today we've come to the verses 21 to 31, which we'll read together, chapter 4, verse 21 to 31. Here we read as follows. Tell me, You who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She's Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? 
Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, throughout the last 10 months, we've been working our way through the epistle to the Galatians, Paul's letter for this church in Galatia, in the area we now know as Turkey. And one of the advantages of spending so much time on this kind of a letter and going through it systematically is that you become familiar with the main themes and you start to get a feel for how he put it together and why things go in a particular order. But at the same time, there are parts of it that are quite difficult. And this morning, we're tackling the most difficult part of an already difficult letter. Now, it might be tempted for, tempting for us to maybe skip it. To say, you know what? Why don't we just work through a psalm instead or something like that? But if you do that, you'll miss out. You'll miss out on an encouraging gospel message that is particularly relevant to us today when we saw two children being baptized. Baptism has a lot to do with this. Baptism is a wonderful testimony to the grace of God. It is His promise, His sign and seal of His promise of cleansing in our lives. In that sense, the children of Believers are set apart from the children of unbelievers. And that setting apart is real. But that's not all. That's not all, because as they grow up, they also need to learn to respond to their baptism. To respond to these promises in faith. And that's true for all of us. Like it says in the form, we are to cleave to this one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to trust Him and to love Him with our whole heart, soul, and mind. And with all our strength, to cleave means that you are joined to him, that you stick to him tightly. And a big part of learning that is learning to rely on Christ and on his work alone in order to be right with God. Now that, that reliance does not come to us naturally. It's always tempting for us to add our own bit. But those who do find out that they're not free after all. It's only through faith in Christ that we can be truly free to serve God. And only then do we also realize the true value of the promise that was given to us. So this morning we're going to consider these matters more closely. We'll consider that those who receive God's promise are His children. And we'll see that there are two types of children and two types of responses. So I encourage you to keep your Bible open to the passage we read. We're going to be going through this line by line, starting with verse 21. In verse 21, Paul refers to those who desire to be under the law. Those who desire to be under the law. 
Now, what does that mean? Who's he talking about? Well, as you may remember, the Galatians were people who were not ethnically Jewish, but who had come to the Christian faith from a heathen background. And now there were people in their midst who were ethnically Jewish, who were telling them that they couldn't be true Christians until they put themselves under the Old Testament law, under all of its rules and all of its regulations. Not just the moral code, but the civil and ceremonial regulations as well. And they said, that means that your men are circumcised. That's your first, your first step to putting yourself under the law. So these people have been wrestling with this. They, they're impressed by the credentials of these Jewish teachers, and, and they do desire to be under the law. And so Paul has been telling them all along, look, you don't need this. The law is fulfilled in Christ. You're only justified through faith in Christ. And he taught them that the whole point of the law was not to make ourselves acceptable to God, but to realize how unacceptable we are by nature so that we turn to God in faith. Only then can you receive the blessing that God promised to Abram in the Old Testament. And that blessing is ultimately to be in the presence of God forever. That's what God's blessing is in its ultimate form, to be in his presence forever. And only God can bring that about. So, so faith, faith in God, faith in his promises was never meant to include works. It was never meant to include something that you do for God in order to change the way that God thinks about you. And we get this wrong often. Often we see faith in terms of something that we do for God. We think of faith as keeping God's rules. And if you ask any, any person who is not a Christian but has a nominal understanding of Christianity, you ask them what does it mean to be a Christian, and the first thing that they'll think about is rules. They'll think about the Ten Commandments. So we often think of faith as keeping God's rules as well, but that is a sterile, dead form of religion. Any religion that focuses primarily on what you need to do is going to lead you away from God, which is actually an incredible thought. You can, you can for example, keep God's law to the letter and still be led away from God. Why? Because the focus is on yourself. Focus is on yourself. And you can fall into despair because you realize the work never ends. Or you become arrogant because you think you're doing well. But none of those things, despair or arrogance, include a focus on God as he reveals himself. You're not living out of faith when you do that. And Paul has been trying to explain this to his readers all along. He's approached this from so many different angles. The same point he's trying to hammer home to these people over and over And here he says, you people who are so keen to keep the law, have you actually paid attention to what it says? And he's using the word law broadly now in uh, verse 21. When he talks about law here, he's not just talking about the Ten Commandments or about, you know, the book of Leviticus or anything like that. But he means law in the Hebrew sense of uh, Torah, the first five books of Moses. That's the law here. And... um, That law, of course, includes Genesis. And in Genesis, we get this story about the patriarch, Abraham. Now, remember that the Jews in general were very proud of the fact that they had descended from Abraham. 
Remember what they said to Jesus, for example, in John 8, verse 33. They said, we are offspring of Abraham. We have never been enslaved to anyone. So the Galatians knew all about Abraham, and Paul speaks to them as if they know this story. And Paul is telling them, look, you've, you've read all of these Jewish scriptures. Have you actually paid any attention to what it really says? And he's alluding here to Genesis 16. God had promised Abraham descendants, but his wife was barren. That means she could have no children. And they've waited for a long time. They've waited for 10 years by this time since his promise, and nothing has happened. So Sarah has an idea. She says to Abraham, look, why don't I give my maidservant to you? You can sleep with her. She'll have a son, and we'll adopt the son. Surrogacy. And that will be our descendant. Now what's the problem with that? Well, they want to use human means to fulfill God's promise. God promised them descendants. Sarah says, this is how we're going to do this. And Abram goes along with it. And it did not go well. Hagar did bear Abraham a son who was named Ishmael. But God made it clear to him, this, this is not the promised son. This was not the son that I promised to you. This was your idea. God is not going to let Abraham contribute his part to fulfilling God's promise. You see how, how starkly it's painted when you look at it in those terms? That God will absolutely not let Abraham contribute his part to fulfilling God's promise to him. So that's what's referred to here in verse 21 or 22. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman, one by a free woman, 23, the son of the slave was born according to the flesh. Ishmael was born according to the flesh. The word flesh refers to all that is sinful, all that is fallible, all that is human beings trying to do human things in a human way. All of that is, is flesh. And the son was born according to the flesh. God would graciously give Ishmael blessings in life, but he was not the one through whom God would fulfill his promises. That would be Isaac. So at that point in verse 23, Paul has set the stage for us. He says, look, there's two types of children. There's two ways of looking at this. One represents human effort, and the other represents the fulfillment of God's promises. So far it makes sense, but now we get to verse 24. And he takes a, a left turn, and he leaves all of us behind. He says, now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem for she is in slavery with her children. And you look at this and think, what is he doing? What does he mean with this word allegorically? Now, technically speaking, to allegorize is to look for a hidden meaning in the text by interpreting every part of it as a figure of speech. Whether or not the author meant for the work to be interpreted allegorically is irrelevant to the person reading. Allegory had developed as a literary form uh, before the time of Paul already. Um, it's interesting that the heathens often read their myths allegorically. 
because our myths are so crass. If you've ever done any reading in um, Greco-Roman myths, they're horrible. They're full of murder and, and all sorts of sexual things and uh, terrible stuff. And, and the Greeks at some point realized, well, this is, this is offensive. So there must be a deeper meaning somewhere. It can't possibly mean what it says. And so they, they decided to um, look deeper. And that was how allegorical reading came about. And it was enormously influential. Many engaged in it. Even some of the respectable church fathers like Augustine. Here's an example of allegorization from Augustine on the parable of the Good Samaritan. Most of us would be familiar with that parable of the Good Samaritan. I assume even the children. And Augustine says, look, you you thought that you knew what this parable was about. It was about a man going from Jerusalem to Jericho and he gets attacked by robbers And uh, then a priest goes by, ignores him, a Levite goes by, ignores him, and then a Samaritan comes who's his enemy and helps him and brings him to an inn. And Augustine said, look, that's not actually what this is about. If you look deeper, then you'll realize that this man who was attacked actually represents Adam after the fall into sin. The robbers represented the devil and his demons who attacked him. The priest and the Levite who passed by represented the Old Testament priesthood and ceremonies which could not bring ultimate salvation. That's why they passed him by. The Good Samaritan represented the Lord Jesus Christ. And the donkey, of course, represents the human flesh. It's stubborn and you can't get it to go along. What about the inn? Well, the inn inn represents the church and the innkeeper represents the Apostle Paul. So in that kind of reading, the text becomes a secret code. And you have all these hidden messages, and you need the special decoding ring of allegory to actually understand what it, what it says. Now, probably most of us, if we thought about that for a while, could work out what the problems are with allegorization. The first problem is that you're no longer dealing with the text, but with what you think it represents. That's not the same thing. The other problem is that there's no way of knowing who's right and who's wrong. The person with the biggest imagination wins. When you read the Bible as it stands, without allegorizing, you can come up with an explanation. This is the beauty of of, um, studying the Bible in the way that, that we've learned to do as heirs of the Reformation. That You look at the grammar, you look at the words, you you cross-reference it with other parts of Scripture, and you come up with an explanation which is based on the text. Then someone else will come along and study the Bible and study that passage and come up with the same explanation, even though the two of you have not spoken with each other. It's because a person is looking at the same text and it has a meaning which we can find. That's not at all the case with allegory. You can have two people that come up with totally different explanations, and then the, the one that's most imaginative carries the day. So an allegory will replace the meaning of the text with a totally new meaning. Is that what Paul is doing here? No, he's not. He's not replacing it, but he's taking what one text says in Genesis, and he's applying it to a totally new situation in Galatia, which is a new on some level, but, but related. We saw that the real question is, who are the true sons of Abraham? 
It's a question he's been asking and answering throughout this letter. And now he's taking the answer to that question straight into the past. He's going back into history, going up the family tree, going back to Abraham, the actual family of Abraham, and then applying that story to Abraham's descendants. He's not importing a new meaning into an old text, but he's taking an old text and applying it in a new situation in Galatia. So in verse 24, when he says that this may be interpreted allegorically, he's actually using the word in a very loose sense. Um, He's not using it in a strictly technical sense, but using it in a sense of what, what the Greek word actually means, which is to say something differently. That's what he's doing. And the point that he's making here is that this domestic dispute in the Old Testament actually represented a profound theological reality. Ishmael was born through human beings trying to fulfill God's promises in their own way, through their own efforts, and that will never work. So it's as if Paul is asking, okay, so you want to be a son of Abraham? Which one are you? Are you the self-made kind? Or are, you, or are you the legitimate kind, the legitimate kind that came through grace? Which son of Abraham are you? The point Paul is making is that not every son of Abraham was a true son of Abraham. It comes back down to this question, what is a true son of Abraham? It can't be physical descent only, because if it was, then Ishmael would have been fine. It can't even be the sign of circumcision, because Ishmael was circumcised as well. It has to be a relationship of faith with God mediated through the covenant built on his promises. And the Jews would have said, well, that's what we have. We were at Sinai. We received God's covenant. We believe. But did they learn? Sinai was meant to teach people that your own efforts will never be enough. The law was there as a guide. The law was something to set them apart. He said that earlier in 324, he said the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But the law also confronted them constantly with their own shortcomings, their own failures, their own sins. But the point was not to leave them in failure, but to make them turn to God for forgiveness and to look forward to the Christ who was to come. And that's why Paul writes in verse 25 that Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem for she's in slavery with her children. Sinai here is being taken to represent the entire Old Testament law system. Sinai was where the Ten Commandments were given. But why does he connect it to slavery? He says, well... He says, even topographically, this makes sense if you, if you look at the geography, because Sinai was in Arabia. Where did Ishmael and Hagar go after they, they left Abraham? Where did their descendants spread out? It was in Arabia. So that all represents slavery, he says. His point is, Hagar was a slave, and so, are, so is everyone who attempts to serve God by focusing only on his rules and keeping them in their own strength. Now, you might wonder, how how does that make sense? How is keeping the law a form of slavery? Well, in the sense that the law told them exactly what to do. Do you remember the opening words of, of Galatians 4? I'll read them to you again. 
Galatians 4 verse 1, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. You see that? He's no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world, which turns out to be the law. You see, says Paul, a slave can only do what he or she is told. That's what life is like under the Old Testament law. Why would you go back to that? And against that, he says in verse 26, the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. He says, look, Sinai's history. Sinai lies behind us now, but now Christ has come. Christ has come, and we are in the last days. It's the Jerusalem above that we're focusing on. Christians are living in the last days. The, the hourglass of the ages is almost empty. The new Jerusalem is coming. He says, you're already a part of God's kingdom. Your, his rule is already in your lives. We're looking forward. Our citizenship is in heaven. And, and that's reflected in Hebrews 12 as well, when it says, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. That's where the true freedom is. It's with Jesus. It's not in the rules and regulations that you can never keep. It's in Jesus and faith in him. Every generation needs to rediscover this for themselves. Every generation has to rediscover grace for themselves. Many people think they're living out of grace. Even reformed people sometimes, even free reformed people sometimes, think they're living out of grace, but they're actually living out of works. Is that you? Are you someone who claims to live out of grace, but you're actually living out of works? Are you always worried about how much you do for the Lord? Is it important to you that other people see how much you do for the Lord? Are you afraid of failure? Are you afraid that you don't measure up? Are you afraid that you're not good enough? Does that ever bother you? Well, that will never change until you understand the message of this text. Until you fully understand what grace is. As Paul said in Acts 13, By him, by Christ, everyone who believes is freed from everything of which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Now, that's not to say there was no grace in the Old Testament. There was. There was lots of grace. Yes, there were, there were rules and there were regulations, that's true, but there was also a system with priests and a temple to obtain forgiveness from God. That's why we can have Psalm 32, Blessed is a man whose trespass is forgiven. Or Psalm 51, Cleanse me and I will be whiter than snow. There is grace there. The Lord doesn't change. But the problem is that people focused on that law and they started to treat it mechanically. They thought that God would be pleased with an outward impression of worship even though their hearts were far from him. The Old Testament prophet Jeremiah warned them about that. In Jeremiah 7 verse 4 he says, Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. He says, Stop focusing on your worship. Stop focusing on this Temple, turn to God in true faith. And we could do the same thing. We could say, well, I'm a church member. I've been baptized. I do all the right things. 
But you don't take your security only in these outward forms and then go off and live as you please. The people of, that's what the people of God did in the Old Testament. Paul reminds them of that in verse 27 of our reading. He says, For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. And it's, a, it's another word picture. It shows the nation of Israel as a woman who has been cast off by God. That's what happened. That's the end of the Old Testament law. It ended in disaster. It ended with people who could not and who would not obey. In 586 BC, the people were finally taken out of the promised land by the Babylonian invaders. Seventy years later, a remnant of them came back. But God had promised all along, even before the exile, he said, one day there will be a huge mass of people worshiping, not just this small remnant. He's looking forward to the New Testament when many Gentiles, many unbelievers, or people from a non-Jewish background would join the people of God, and they would join not by keeping the rules of Sinai, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And here is where we come into the picture. Because we also come from a non-Jewish background. And our forefathers also were unbelievers. If you go far enough up your family tree, you will find unbelievers. You'll go back far enough. Many of us come from Dutch dock, and if you go back far enough, your ancient Dutch ancestors were worshiping oak trees in the northern part of Holland. They were heathens. But the gospel came to us. We were grafted onto this tree. And so, if you're going to be part of God's people, it can never be by keeping the rules. That's true whether we're talking about the rules of Sinai or any other rules. Living by the rules does not make you a child of God. Instead, the focus is on God and on His promises. And that is the very message that was represented to us in baptism this morning. Baptism depicts our sinfulness, our inability to keep God's law on our own. The form for baptism has dreadful words in it. Dreadful. We and our children are conceived and born in sin and are therefore by nature children of wrath so that we cannot enter the kingdom of God unless we are born again. That's what the immersion in or sprinkling with water teaches us. It's a confession of sin. First and foremost, that we stand up here as parents and we say we have failed. We have failed our children even before we brought them into this world, conceived and born in sin, children of failure, destined for failure. And God says, no, these children belong to me. These are my children. I'm making my covenant promises to my children just as I made them to you. Turn to me and be saved and I will cleanse you. That's what the water of baptism means. God gave his promise to us and to our children, and he calls us all to respond in faith. We've seen that there are two types of children. There are also two types of responses, and we'll look at that next. Verse 28. Paul says, You, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. And he's writing here to... Um, He's addressing the brothers, but it's an inclusive brother. So this includes, obviously, the, the other church members as well. He says to them, you are children of promise. 
Now, if you're following along in the translation, you might uh, have a different word here. Um, you, in some old manuscript, says we. And the reason for that is because in the Greek uh, language, which this was originally written in, you and we sound almost the same when you pronounce them. So there was some confusion occasionally when people copied this stuff. But the point is, regardless of which translation you follow, the point is that believers today are children of the promise, like Isaac was. How are they like Isaac? Isaac did not become a child of the promise when he believed as an adult. He already had the promise as a child when he was circumcised. But for that promise to be meaningful... He had to respond to it in faith. He had to believe it. And that was what he did. In that sense, all those who believe are children of promise, like Isaac. And Paul, as a Jew here, calls these people his brothers. The presence of God's promises will always provoke some sort of a response. That's why he says in verse 29, Just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. And uh, he's referring here to, to what we read from our passage in Genesis 21. And you might think, how, how is this persecution? We read that Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned, but Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham, laughing. Oh, he's laughing. So is everyone else in this passage. So How's that persecution? But it wasn't actually that innocent. There's different kinds of laughter, as you would also know when you read that whole Abraham story. There's different kinds of laughter, and this was the, the laughter of unbelief, the laughter of scorn, of, of mocking. Paul here uses the Greek word persecute to, to translate this, and it means, it means to pursue, to persecute. There must have been more involved than just laughter. But it's clear that Ishmael did not take any of what God said seriously. And that's why we read in Genesis 21 verse 10 that Sarah said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. Isn't it fascinating that in our text Paul takes these words and slightly rewords them to apply them to the situation of the Galatians. And he says in verse 30, it's not just Sarah who said this. This was Scripture. This was God speaking through her. Now think about that. We, we in our um, limited way of understanding, we would have, if you'd only read the Old Testament passage, you would have said this is just a domestic dispute. But Paul says, look, if you read the story properly, then you realize what happened here is a picture of what must always happen when you take God's promises seriously. God's promises will always cause a separation between those who believe and those who don't. And he says that's the way that it's supposed to go. That's also how God in his providence worked it out in this situation. So separation between those who believe and those who don't. Where do you see that the most clearly? We would say, well, between the church and the world, of course. Is that really true? Who causes the most grief and division in a church? It's not the people on the outside. They don't even know we exist half the time. 
Sometimes it's people from within. It comes from those who are proud, self-assured in their religion, who, in the words of the Lord's Supper form, despise the proclamation of God's word or the sanctity of the sacraments. Those are the people from whom we are to separate ourselves. And when we do that, something amazing happens. In verse 31, Paul writes, So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. In other words, when we respond in faith, when we separate ourselves from all that opposes God, then we share in the same promises that Isaac received. We're children of the free woman as well. We are, so to speak, written into this story. This word picture has actually become a part of us. This is fascinating. You know, so often we read, we read Scripture as something that's separate from us. And here Paul, writing to these people and writing to us, he's actually, he's actually writing the story into our lives, or maybe we're a part of the story now. He says, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. We are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. And this story becomes our story. So, brothers and sisters, believe God's promises. You receive them in baptism. Now receive them in faith. And care for your faith. Faith is a gift. It should always be cherished as the highest thing. Those who are parents should nurture anything in our children that shows the first signs of faith. It should be prioritized. We should diligently guard anything that sabotages their faith or ours. We should reject all that mocks or despises our faith. Cast them all out. Respond to God's promises in faith. And then you can be assured He will be with you forever. For that is what the promise is. Amen.